Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 37. And so this week, we're going to finish up the book of Ezekiel. Praise the Lord, right? I know you're saying that out there. <laughs> and get about halfway into the book of Daniel, which is the last of the major prophets. Now, as we begin this last section of Ezekiel, let me just say this to start so I can get it out of the way. You might have a tendency to think that some of these promises and prophecies in this last section of Ezekiel um, to Israel are fulfilled in the church. Now, if you do this, you're beginning to espouse the replacement theology. That is that because Israel rejected Christ, the church has now become the new Israel and replaced them. This is called replacement theology, and that's not what the scriptures teach. God still has a future plan for Israel. Think about it. If he didn't have a plan for Israel, then the small Middle Eastern nation would have been wiped off the map centuries ago. And so this is a word of warning, not to take a promise or prophecy that is specifically designed for Israel and apply it to the church. That's bad hermeneutics or interpretation. That's bad theology as well. Now, with all that being said, sometimes there are good comparisons and similarities that parallel much of what has happened in the history of Israel to the history of the church. I mean, after all, Christianity has Jewish roots, doesn't it? But when um, uh, when we come to it, we're going to note similarities, comparisons, and metaphors. We do it carefully so as not to take Scripture out of its intended context. Remember, I've said this before, context is king. Now, another quick note is that many of these prophecies and promises to Israel still await fulfillment during the end times, and I'll try to help distinguish historical fulfillment and future fulfillment of these promises when necessary. Now, We've started with this last section of Ezekiel, which is chapters 33 through 48. This section deals with the restoration of Israel. This week we pick up with chapter 35. And in order to, uh, for Israel to experience renewal, she will need her land back. And this means that those who claim access to the land need to be evicted. And obviously because she had been in captivity for 70 years, there have been other nations who have taken advantage of her misfortunes. Edom is listed as a nation here. She's singled out in chapter 35 in the first part of chapter 36. And I think the big picture, the big reason um, Edom is represented here is she is representative of all the enemies of Israel who wanted to take over her land. She had a long history of land squabbles with Edom. And Edom was the nation that had the longest and most consistently resisted Israel's occupation of the promised land. Now, while Edom is representative of all those um, who have taken the land promised to Israel, today there is no trace of the Edomites in actuality although there are some cities have been identified. So in this small section of chapters 35 through 36, 15, God was declaring that those who had sought and were seeking to possess the land of Israel would be removed and judged in order that Israel could now possess her land once again. Now, starting at 36, verse 16, and continuing through the rest of the chapter of chapter 36, we're told that the Lord would bring them back into the land. The Lord tells Ezekiel that the reason why the people were scattered in the first place was because of the way they had lived in the land, they had defiled it, and so God was going to judge them because of their bloodshed and idolatry. He had judged them for their deeds by scattering them among the nations. But their dispersion made God look like he wasn't powerful and he wasn't in control. And so the Lord risked even his reputation by driving Israel out of the land. But in spite of them, God would still act on their behalf. Look at what verse 22 of chapter 36 says. Highlight it, mark it in red. It's a really, really powerful verse. Let me read it to you. I'm reading from NLT. I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. I am doing it to protect my holy name. 
you know, the Lord's restoration of Israel is solely based on his promise, his character, not on anything good that they have done. Likewise, the gift of salvation from Jesus is not because of anything good that we have done. It's because of his grace and his love for us and his promise to bless the nations of the world. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. You know, this verse also reminds me of that verse we talked about back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, that says, You must recognize that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land because you are good, for you are not. You are a stubborn people. You see, God originally gave Israel the promised land not because they were good, but because he was gracious. God will restore Israel back to her land in the future, not because they are good, but because God is gracious. You see the point? Now, in verses 24 through 32 of this chapter, there are several promises. First, God would regather his people from the nations and bring them back to their land. This, ha- this hasn't happened yet and still yet future. Second, God would purify them and cleanse them. And since Ezekiel was a priest, the cleansing aspect uh, would probably be ceremonial that he's referencing here. He will remove their old heart of stone, which went after other gods, and give them a new heart of flesh. Third, he will put a new spirit within them. Now, be careful with this promise, the temptation to find fulfillment of the new heart and new spirit as it relates to the church and what happened at Pentecost. We have to resist that. It's better to look at this in these terms. New Testament conversion is only a preview of the massive spiritual revival God has in store for all of true Israel and Gentiles who believe. Now, fourth, his spirit within the Israelites would cause them to obey his commands carefully. This is a coming of the Holy Spirit on Israel in the future, not his coming on the church at Pentecost. We need to make that distinction. Fifth, Israel would live in the promised land. The land promises finally would be fulfilled and they would be fruitful in their land. The long awaited promises of the Abrahamic covenant finally will be fulfilled. Israel will dwell in the land promised to her forefathers. You know, by faith in Jesus Christ, Gentiles as well as Jews presently experience many of the same blessings that God promised here to bring to the entire nation of Israel in the future. Now, Ezekiel concludes chapter 36 by summarizing the effects of Israel's restoration, both upon the nations and upon Israel. The surrounding nations will realize the work of restoration. This is the work of God. This is the work of one powerful God alone, the God of Israel. Now, The first part of chapter 37 is probably one of the more familiar parts of Ezekiel. Uh, This is Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones bones coming back to life. And this is an illustration of how God would accomplish the restoration of Israel. And some interpreters like to pick apart uh, this vision by Ezekiel. It's best if we pay attention to the interpretation of the vision given by God himself in verses 11 through 14. It says, God shall cause Israel to live again as a nation physically, represented by the skeletons and bones, and spiritually, represented by the spirit or breath. It's actually the same word in Hebrew. Yahweh, or God, will bring Israel to her land. He will restore her f- spiritually by placing his spirit within her, with a result that Israel will recognize that God is her Lord. Now, the rest of chapter 37 is another illustration using two sticks. This demonstration that God would join both the house of Israel together, the north and the south, in the future to form one nation with one king over them all. And of course, this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, wherein God said that a son of David would be ruling over Israel in the future. And of course, the son of David in view here is Jesus as he sits on the throne and reigns in that millennial kingdom. God would make a covenant of peace with his people and would plant them securely in the land and set his sanctuary or his temple in their midst forever. Now, take a look at this closely. How is the Antichrist so successful in deception of God's people? 
He makes a peace treaty with them, allows them to come back to their land, allows them to worship and to rebuild their temple. All the things that God will give his people in the future, the Antichrist tries to do in the tribulation in attempt to deceive the nation of Israel. Don't miss that connection there. Now, on to some harder chapters, chapters 38 and 39. I know you're thinking, harder? (laughs) Haven't we already had harder chapters? Well, these chapters detail a final attempt by foreigners to possess the land of Israel in the future. And there are at least eight views as to the time of this battle that's described or this invasion that's described in chapters 38 and 39. I'm not going to give you all eight views. You can do that on your own. I'm just going to highlight my preference. And understand this is my view. This is kind of how I see it. I'm open to how other people see it as well. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the law of the Medes and the Persians, of which we'll talk about when we get to Daniel, which is the next book. And just understand as well, you know, I've looked at the evidence from all sides, uh, and so I'm not going into this blindly. You know, I believe that this battle that is described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place after the rapture of the church and before the beginning of the tribulation period. You see, sometimes we assume that right after the rapture, the next thing that's going to happen is the tribulation. But what Scripture does not tell us is how long the interval is between the rapture and the tribulation. This is how I look at it. You know, when the rapture of the church takes place, worldwide chaos ensues because of the millions that disappear. And a huge support for Israel disappears as well. So guess what? The Islamic world looks at this chaotic event and wants to take advantage of it. And what has the Islamic world always wanted to do? They've always wanted to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And so as these nations come up against Israel and go to war with her, as pictured in Ezekiel 38 and 39, God intercedes in a miraculous way on behalf of the nation of Israel, in a supernatural way, bringing in destruction, famine, and terror upon all those who want to attack Israel, much like the plagues of Egypt, I suppose. And in the aftermath, and since the whole world sees what happens, the whole world sees what God does for his people, they don't want to mess with Israel and her God. And so the world agrees to allow Israel to have her land back and allows her to rebuild the temple. I mean, after all, the Islamic world has been destroyed, and any threat or any desire for that holy site has been destroyed as well. Now, that's my reconstruction based on what the other scriptures say in this passage, but I don't disagree with others who choose a different path. What I can say and what we can say with utmost certainty is that this battle in chapters 38 and 39, whenever it might happen, is yet future. Now, that brings us to the last section of Ezekiel, which is chapters 40 through 48. And these chapters present details of the millennial temple, the millennial priesthood, the sacrifices, and tribal divisions set up during the millennium as forerunners to the eternal state. Now, I know you have questions. Why a temple? Why reinstate animal sacrifices? Why the return of the requirements to the Mosaic law? Hopefully, we'll be able to answer those questions as we work through these chapters. So as we move to chapter 40, in the first part of the vision, Ezekiel sees a restored temple. And I'm trying not to get bogged down in specific details because I know you remember all the details from the construction of the tabernacle. Remember how many there were. These details are different because this is a different tabernacle, a different temple. So you can compare and contrast those on your own. Now in chapter 40, verses 5 through 27, these verses concern details about the outer court in Chapter 40, verses 28 through 47, there are some details about the inner court. And Ezekiel highlights four things of this inner court, the gates of the inner court, the tables for preparing sacrifices, the chambers for the ministering priests, and the altar. The third area that Ezekiel sees is the temple itself, and that's chapter 40, verses 48 through chapter 41, verse 46. 
and he includes a description of the porch, the post, the holy place with its grand entrance, the holy of holies, the temple wall, the chambers, the interior, and uh, the experience of the temple is is a broad sense. In fact, in all and from these various measurements, this temple will be about one square mile. That's larger than all previous temples. That's a lot of space. So this temple is enormous. Now, chapter 42 also describes the chambers of the outer court and the outer wall. Then as you move into chapter 43, it records an amazing event, the return of the glory or the Shekinah glory of God. Remember back in chapter 10, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple right before it was destroyed by Babylon. Well, now that same glory returns. And just as the glory of God sanctioned and authorized Solomon's temple, it will also sanction and authorize this temple by its return from the same direction that it left. And so once the glory of God returns, a promise is made that it will never depart from Israel again. And the rest of chapter 43 describes the altar, its measurements, and consecration. This millennial temple is to be the center of Jewish and Gentile worship during this millennial kingdom on earth. Now, what about animal sacrifices in the millennial temple? Well, let me just say this. The accepted view that's been given for a long time by conservative scholars is that sacrifices offered during the earthly reign of Christ will not be a visible reminder of his work on the cross. They won't have any atoning effect, but simply memorialize Christ's death. Just like the Lord's Supper looks back on the cross and we practice the Lord's Supper as a reminder or memorial of his death. Now that's all well and good, but it actually doesn't satisfy all of what the text says because the game has now changed drastically. You see, the glory of God has returned to the temple and now a holy God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And during the millennium, there will be two types of humanity. The ones who have been glorified, those will be the church saints, the tribulation saints, the Old Testament saints. But there will also be unglorified humanity. Some people who accepted Christ during the tribulation and they live, they don't die, and they are moved right into becoming millennial citizens. While they may have accepted Christ's gift of salvation, they still are sinful and they still are human. They haven't been glorified. And so for Ezekiel, the concept of atonement is the same as it was in the book of Leviticus, namely an act that wipes away and purges uncleanness. So God's very presence exists in the temple. And because of God's promise to dwell on earth during the millennium, as it's stated in Ezekiel and the New Covenant in Jeremiah, it's necessary that he protect his presence through sacrifice, like what he did in the Old Testament. Now, this sacrifice system in the millennium is only temporary because during the eternal state or eternity with Christ, all the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem will be glorified, and therefore uh, there won't be a source of contagious impurities to defile the holiness of God. Okay, did you get all that? I'm sure you have lots of questions for me later, but let's move on to chapters 44 and 46. Chapters 44 through 46 speak of a new service of worship. The Levites' present position will be downgraded. That's right, downgraded because of their sinfulness. In the millennium, they will be downgraded to caretakers or servants in the temple. The sons of Zadok will be in charge of the sacrifices, namely because of their faithfulness to God. Then regulations for offerings and feast days are given. And then there are specific duties of the prince. And some believe that this prince is Jesus, but this prince is to prepare an offering for himself and for the people. Look at chapter 45, verse 22. Jesus would never need to offer a sin offering for himself. So this prince might be, in fact, David himself. The prince will use true and righteous measures. He will be responsible for carrying out the laws of the offerings. And he will have some special rights because of his position. 
Now, since God himself in the person of the Messiah will be dwelling in and reigning from Jerusalem, there will be no need for an Ark of the Covenant. And furthermore, the Ark of the Covenant contained the tablets of stone that were an embodiment of the Law of Moses. And the fact that the Law of Moses is no longer in effect is another reason why the Ark of the Covenant is going to be missing. So to summarize, there will be a sacrificial system instituted in the millennium that will have some features similar to the Mosaic system, along with some brand new laws. And for that very reason, the sacrificial system of the millennium must not be viewed as a reinstitution of the Mosaic system, because it is not. It will be a brand new system that will contain some things old and some things new and will be instituted for an entirely different purpose. I hope you get that. Now, the last two chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's 47 through 48, concern a new land. And first uh, is the Millennial River. And I bet there is some good fishing in that Millennial River. It originates in the temple. We're told in Joel chapter 3, verse 18, and Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. Those are the only other two passages that reference the Millennial River. And for the first time in Israel's history, the Jews will possess and settle in all of the Promised Land. And it will again be subdivided into the 12 tribal divisions. But these tribal divisions will be different than those described in the book of Joshua. And Ezekiel closes the final section of his book with a short description of the Millennial Jerusalem, adding details not found elsewhere in the prophets. In describing the gates of the new city of Jerusalem, Ezekiel brought the city full circle from what it was at the beginning of his book. The city doomed for destruction will be restored to glory. Well, that concludes Ezekiel, a book that ended on much, much better of a note than what it started. Aren't you glad you stayed with me through the whole book? Look at all that good stuff at the end you would have missed. All right, now on to one of my favorite Old Testament books and one I'm vaguely familiar with, <laughs> uh, the book of Daniel. A few things to look for when reading Daniel. First, you need to understand that Daniel was also ministering to the Jewish people during the days of the exile. However, he is not specifically called a prophet, nor did he have a prophetic call like Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Now, our English Bible classifies him as a prophet because of all the prophetic material you find in the book, but he might be better known as a statesman or a diplomat. Second, the book of Daniel is about God's sovereignty, his role in and over the affairs of man. When God wants a kingdom to rise, he does it. When he wants a kingdom to fall, he does it. When he wants to depose a king, he does it. When he wants to uh, uh, promote a king, he does. The fact that God is in control of all things should bring us a measure of encouragement, of peace, and hope. Third, Daniel was taken as a teenager, likely about 14 years old, to Babylon. And there is no evidence he ever returned to Israel, but he was permitted to see the Jewish people return back to the land. Many scholars believe he died in Babylon. Fourth, Part of Daniel's ministry in the court narratives was to demonstrate to the world that the God he served was more powerful than all the other gods of Babylon. These court contests between Daniel's God and the gods of Babylon are kind of reminiscent of Moses in the court of Pharaoh. Fifth, you won't be able to understand the book of Revelation without a good understanding of Daniel. Daniel is the key to biblical prophecy. Well, I could say a hundred other things, but we got to get into the text. So, in chapter one of Daniel, we're introduced to Daniel and his three friends who have been taken captive to Babylon. And upon arrival in Babylon, they're enrolled in the University of Babylon for a three-year study in everything Babylonian. It's the intent of Nebuchadnezzar to change their allegiances and send them back to Israel to rule on behalf of Babylon, a common practice of the day. Now, while in their training period, Daniel and his three friends are confronted with a test of their conviction. They refuse to eat from the king's table and ask their immediate supervisor to allow them a trial period of 10 days in order that they might demonstrate that they don't need to eat the king's food and drink to be strong and capable men. 
at the end of the 10 days, the four teenagers were in better shape and better looking than all the others who had eaten from the king's table. So the immediate supervisor allowed them to continue this practice throughout the remainder of their schooling. And guess what? No one else knew about it. That's right. They didn't go off parading around there, abstaining from the sustenance of Babylon. They kept it quiet and kept it to themselves. Of course, God saw their loyalty to him. And maybe that's a good lesson for us as well. Obedience to God's word doesn't need an audience. Remember that, because I have a feeling that might be a sermon <laughs> one day. Daniel chapter 2 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar has a frightening dream that he needs interpreted from the wise men of Babylon. And so the king calls in his wise men with a command that they describe the dream and interpret it. In a normal setting, the king would describe the dream for the wise men, and the wise men would use their magic manuals and astrology guides to concoct a flowery interpretation that would soothe the ego of the king. But not this time. This time the king wanted to test whether or not these men were actually in touch with the gods, because if they were in touch with the gods, then they'd have no problems with the king's command, right? Well, the confession that they cannot do what the king asked to do uh, causes the king to go into a fit of rage. And the king tells his guards to round up all the wise men and get ready to kill them. Well, when the guards come to Daniel's house, he requests an audience with the king. And Daniel asking the king for a night to talk to his god about the dream, he is permitted to do that. He and his three friends have an all-night prayer meeting as their lives depended on it. And God gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream, and he goes before the king the next day to deliver the message. Daniel interprets the dream of the great statue, explaining to the king through the dream the course of world empires from Babylon to the end times. At the end of his interpreting of the dream, the king is dumbfounded at Daniel's abilities and rewards him and his three friends with promotions in the kingdom. Then the story moves right into chapter 3, and this is the familiar story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery inferno. From Daniel's interpretation of the dream in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar decides to build the gold head-like statue. Think about a bobblehead. It's kind of like what it would have looked like. And he wants to call everyone in the kingdom to bow down and worship it. And when the music plays and the herald cries aloud, the command for all to bow down, three Jewish, Jewish teenagers don't bow down. These three are pointed out to the king by others in his government who disliked these three and wanted to find a way uh, for them to be fired, maybe literally too, to be burned. The king questions the three for their actions. Remember, these three were promoted back in chapter 2 to be leaders in the province of Babylon. These weren't ordinary citizens, but high-ranking government officials. And so they respond to the king that even if their God doesn't deliver them from the king, they will still not bow down and worship the image. The three are bound and cast into the fiery inferno, but... They don't burn. In fact, when the king looks into the furnace, he sees not three men, but four. And when you are thrown into the fires of this world, guess what? There's a fourth man right beside you, and his name is Jesus. But if you want to experience the close presence of Jesus, sometimes it requires going through the fires of life to get to him. And may that be a good lesson for us all. Now, chapter 4 takes us to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He has another dream. This time, he describes the dream for the wise men. But the wise men are still unable to interpret the king's dream. So Daniel is called in to help, and he tells the king what the king saw in his dream is going to come true. But if the king changes his actions and ways, the God of heaven might stay his punishment, might prevent, might... Uh, stop it from happening right away. Well, the king doesn't listen to Daniel's advice, and one year later, the dream comes true, and Nebuchadnezzar is turned into, what I like to call him, the Birdman of Babylon. So after the seven years of the king's illness was finished, he acknowledged that Daniel's God was truly the Most High. Now, I personally think that Nebuchadnezzar came to a saving faith in Christ, but others might disagree. By the way, did you catch that this chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar himself? He wants the world to know that gracious and long-suffering and merciful one true God. And so he broadcasts that message to the entire kingdom. 
Now, chapter 5 takes us to the final night that the kingdom of Babylon rules over the world. Belshazzar, who is ruling in Babylon on behalf of his father, decides to have a grand feast for a thousand of his officials. The cups and bowls that were used in this feast were taken from the temple treasury, and specifically, these were the ones taken from the Jerusalem temple almost 70 years earlier. This act of sacrilege led to handwriting on the wall. Again, none of Babylon's finest wise men were able to understand the writing except for Daniel. And so Daniel interprets the handwriting for the king, giving the king a history lesson. Because Belshazzar had not learned the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had learned, that Yahweh was the one true God. Nebuchadnezzar responded with repentance back in chapter 4. Here in chapter 5, Belshazzar does not respond with repentance. This is the tale of two kings, you might say. As this event was happening, the Medo-Persian Empire had already found a way into the city of Babylon, and that very night, Belshazzar was killed, and the Medo-Persian Empire became the new world ruler. Now, Daniel chapter 6, because my time is basically gone now, finishes up our reading for this week. This is the classic narrative of Daniel in the lion's den. And just notice one thing. Notice the sense of peace that Daniel has in this narrative. It's a peace that God is in control of all things. No matter what happens, I'm safe in his hands. And by the way, if you have time to compare, compare chapter 6 of Daniel with chapter 3 side by side. There are, they are identical in so many ways, just with different characters. Well, my time's gone. So that's all I've got for this week. Email any questions to BibleReading at LBC.org, and I'll talk with you all next week.